We are um, at the kind of coming towards the end of a series that we've been doing called Come Home, and it's really a, a series on the 12 minor prophets. And so when we use that term minor prophets, that doesn't mean, again, I've said this a bunch of times, that doesn't mean that they're unimportant, uh, but rather just that they're shorter books, so they're smaller than some of the, the bigger pro- prophetic books in the Old Testament. But they each have a message, and, uh, and the messages are similar in some respects. Essentially, part of what God is doing in each of these is He's inviting uh, the people of Israel and the people of Judah to come back to Him, because many of uh, these uh, prophetic books um, are addressing the Israelites wandering away from God in the pursuit of idolatry or in the pursuit of syncretism um, or just sort of a general religious laxity. And so today we're going to be looking at the book of Zephaniah. Jeremy already mentioned he read a section from uh, Zephaniah chapter 3. Let me give you some quick sort of background on the book of Zephaniah. Uh, So first of all, uh, Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. So if you guys are familiar with him, all you need to know is about 2,600 years ago. This was a long time ago. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah, of Nahum, and probably Habakkuk as well. Uh, The name uh, Zephaniah actually means the Lord has concealed or the Lord has protected Um, And fundamentally, the way that we would translate that is actually treasured by God, which I know sounds confusing. But what people would do, they would take their riches and they would bury them in the ground and they would cover them and hide them. And so the name Zephaniah means, you know, hidden by God, treasured by God. He was writing to the people of Israel and he was writing for the purpose of addressing their idolatry and their syncretism. Syncretism is when you take something that is a good thing that God has created and you put it on equal footing with God, and you treat the two as equal. And he was also uh, confronting the people with their religious apathy. And so there's all these reasons that Zephaniah is writing to the people of Israel. Now, um, one of the main things that we're going to talk about, however, today isn't idolatry, it's not syncretism, it's not all those other things, but really what we're going to see in the book of Zephaniah is what Jeremy pointed out earlier, and it's the grace and the mercy of God. Let's take a moment, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. I thank you that though you do, like a good parent, warn us of danger and warn us of sin, also like a good parent, you show us mercy and you show us grace. Father, I thank you that through Jesus, we have the clearest example of that mercy and grace, that you loved us enough to pursue us, and uh, that Jesus loved us enough to lay down his life in order to bring us back into a relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that we would come before you today not standing in our own righteousness or somehow standing before you in the absence of our unrighteousness, but I pray that all of us would stand here today in the righteousness of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. So I've mentioned over the years uh, many sort of facets of my life growing up in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. And uh, I, I probably have mentioned wrestling before, but I'm going to mention it again today. So wrestling, back then this was NWA wrestling. I'm talking about Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, uh, Ric Flair, uh, the Rock and Roll Express. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. Uh, you know, growing up in TR, we took it so seriously. There used to be really big debates sort of on the playground at school about whether it was real or not real. You know, there's all sorts of discussions about that. We used to make cardboard belts, and then we would wrap them with tinfoil. You know, this is like maybe my sophomore year of high school. Just kidding. It was like in fifth grade. Anyway, (laughs) and then we would literally have wrestling matches with the pillows from the couches, and you would practice all the moves, the figure four, all these different moves on people. 
Anyway, so I, I just am way too big of a, there's way too much nostalgia for me around old-timey wrestling. Anyway, so a couple nights ago, um, Chris and I were sitting on the couch, and we had some, you know, we had a, an hour and a half or so to kind of kill, and uh, I said, Chris, I want you to trust me, and she kind of looked at me funny, and I was like, there's a documentary I'd like for us to watch, and I said, it's called uh, The Resurrection of Jake the Snake Roberts, Okay. So I don't know if, it, let me show you a picture. We got a picture of Jake the Snake up here in a second. You can't really, you can't see it too well. He's got a, an amazingly sweet, long, curly mullet. He's got a great Magnum P.I. mustache, um, and he's holding a snake because that was sort of his prop. And uh, he was sort of in like the second or third wave of wrestlers uh, to sort of come onto the scene, but he's a pretty famous guy. Some of you guys are familiar with Jake the Snake. But the story of Jake the, of Jake the Snake, Roberts, the resurrection of Jake the Snake, is an interesting one because the story begins with him as a 58-year-old man living out in Texas, and he is a shadow of his former self. I mean, he looks like he's 20 or 25 years older. I mean, he's in such terrible shape that he can barely even walk. I mean, he is just utterly shot. And the reason he can barely even walk, the reason he's in such bad shape isn't because of his wrestling career, although some of those injuries were probably real. Um, but rather was because of his drug addiction and his alcohol addiction. He just punished himself uh, for 20 years after his wrestling career was over. And so the beginning of this documentary is just showing what a bad state he's in. And so what happens is um, one of his good friends that uh, actually Jake the Snake mentored, a guy named Diamond Dallas Page, some of you guys may be familiar with that name, DDP, as we like to call him back in TR, Anyway, um, found out that Jake was in a bad place, and so drove out uh, all the way out to Texas and said, I want you to come live with me, and I'm going to try to get you clean, right? I'm going to try to get you off your drug addiction. I'm going to try to get you off your alcohol addiction. And so for the next year, uh, Jake the Snake lived with Diamond Dallas Page, and Diamond Dallas Page continued to pursue him, continued to stay with him, uh, continued to, to sort of love him and tell him, speak true things to him. He basically tells him over and over again, you know, how much he loves him and what a good friend he's been and all these things, all these things that Jake the Snake needed to hear uh, in his childhood but never heard. And, uh, and I don't want to give too much of the story away, um, but suffice it to say that Jake the Snake goes through a pretty amazing uh, transformation, and it's precisely because his friend, Diamond Dallas Page, has pursued him and followed him, and it really does um, probably save his life. Now, we've got some other pictures. There's a picture of Diamond Dallas Page on the left, and uh, Jake the Snake on the right, you can't see it because the projector's not doing so well today, but it's a great story. There's lots of language in it, so I'm not necessarily recommending it for everybody, but it's, uh, it's an interesting tale. And part of what's interesting about it is because um, the trouble that Jake the Snake experienced was trouble of his own making, right? I mean, he's the one that got addicted to drugs. He's the one that got addicted to alcohol. He's the one that kept uh, sliding back into those addictions over and over and over again. The trouble he was experiencing was trouble that he made, but his salvation ultimately came because someone pursued him, cared for him, loved him, and delighted in him. That's part of the message that we see here in Zephaniah as well. I'm going to read uh, chapter 3. I'm going to read a section of verses. Let's jump into these verses in Zephaniah. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And so God here confronts four sins in this one, or these two verses alone. Jerusalem is disobedient. She refuses correction, so she's incorrigible. Uh, the people aren't trusting in the Lord. The people of Jerusalem refuse to draw near to God. This is not unlike Diamond Dallas Page confronting Jake the Snake and saying, 
here are your problems. Here are your issues. You need to look at the reality of where your heart is right now and what's happening to you. Verse 3, her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They're treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. So the prophets and the priests have become corrupt. They lack integrity in regard to worship. They lack integrity regarding the worship of God. And the civic leaders or civil leaders are corrupt as well. Jumping ahead to verse 8. Verse 8 says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Sounds like bad news. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call in the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. On that day, Jerusalem will not, Jerusalem will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, right? You can imagine God saying exactly the opposite. I am going to put you to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me, but he says exactly the opposite. You won't be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. And so the leaders, the prophets, the people of Jerusalem, so many of them have become corrupt. So many of them have turned away from God. They've become prideful. They've become arrogant. They've become boastful. They've sinned without remorse. That's the incorrigibility part. And God is going to remove those people in order to save Jerusalem, in order to save the other people of Jerusalem. So the question is, who remains? Verse 12, God gives us an answer. But I will leave within you the meek and humble. Not the sinless, but rather those people who see their sin and know their sin and repent over their sin. I will leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. When the godly remain, that, those meek, those humble, those people who trust in the Lord, then all of a sudden the society is a society that is a society that works for peace and flourishing and honesty. There's no threats. There's no fear. Verse 14, sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. You deserve to be punished, but I'm going to take that away and put it somewhere else, right? You've got an enemy that would destroy you, but I'm going to turn away that enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So as with all of these minor prophetic books, we're taking a book with lots and lots of different chapters and verses, and we're going to be looking really at a couple of different things, which means we're going to exclude a lot of stuff. So the question is, what can we take away from this passage today? Well, the first thing I want us to look at is that God is with those who trust in him, right? doesn't say that he's with the perfect. It doesn't say with, he's with those people who are purely, you know, you know, moralistic. It says that God is with those who trust in him. Verse 12, 
But I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. God is with those who trust in him. Why does God's promise to be with us mean so much? Because the presence of God is one of our deepest needs. We all understand intuitively our fear of being alone. In fact, one of the things that probably is our deepest fear is of being alone, and part of what God does, he says, I will be with you. Moses knew not only of his need of God, but also he knew that what he needed more than anything was for God to be with him. Exodus 33, God commands Moses to take the Israelites to the promised land, and in a very wonderful interaction that it gets reiterated in numerous ways in this story, what Moses says over and over again, he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. In other words, what Moses says over and over again is, I'm not going anywhere unless you promise to be with me. Moses desired the presence of God and knew just how important that was. In Psalm 139, David finds strength in knowing that God is with him. Here's, listen to the words of Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. You're not going anywhere. I can't get away from you. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For the darkness is like light to you. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I'm awake, I am still with you. David finds strength and courage in this dark night of the soul, remembering that no matter what, God is with him. God is with those who trust in him. Even Jesus, when faced with the realization that his disciples were going to scatter and that he was going to go to the cross alone, found strength in knowing that God was with him. John 16 says this, Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone for my father is with me, right? God is with those who trust in him. How many of you today need to be reminded that God is with you? Maybe your world feels like it's falling absolutely apart. Maybe you've been betrayed by a friend uh, or a family member or a spouse. Maybe you're facing something that absolutely seems insurmountable out of your ability to control. And maybe in the midst of all of that, worse yet, you feel like you are absolutely and completely alone in the midst of everything. But the message of Zephaniah is that you are not alone, right? You're not alone. God is with you. If you trust in the name of the Lord, then God is with you. It's the first thing we see in this book. The second thing I'm going to draw your attention to is that not only is God with those meek, those humble, those people who trust in Him, but God also delights in those who trust in Him. Just let, just let your mind wrap around that for a moment. Just think for a moment about the fact that, that God delights in you if you trust in Him. Verses 12 and 17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight 
in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. There's a Catholic priest whose name is Greg Boyle who lives out in Los Angeles. He founded a, a, a family of businesses called Homeboy Industries, and it started off as a bakery uh, that employed uh, any number of different former gang members and former felons who couldn't be employed in other ways. And uh, progressively, he started this family of businesses that employed all these, other pe- these people who had lived these harsh, harsh lives and were virtually unemployable otherwise. Um, he also wrote a book called Tattoos of the Heart, which is, a, again, sort of a, a telling of his work with these gang members. And it's just a fantastic story of him working with these folks in Los Angeles. And in his book, Tattoos of the Heart, he claims that we all have what he calls a touchstone, a touchstone or controlling image of God. And so for some people, that touchstone image of God is maybe a critical or a condescending father. Maybe it's just a father that was gone, maybe an absentee father. For others, their touchstone image of God might be a high school principal or maybe a judge with a furrowed brow. Boyle, however, explains that his touchstone image of God comes from his friend and spiritual mentor, a man named Bill Kane. And he, I'm going to read sort of the story of this. He says, years ago, Bill, my mentor, took a break from his own ministry to care for his father as he died of cancer. His father had become a frail man, dependent on Bill to do everything for him. Though he was physically not what he had been, and the disease was wasting him away, his mind remained alert and lively. In the role reversal common to adult children who care for their dying parents, Bill would put his father to bed and then read him to sleep, exactly as his father had done for him in childhood. Bill would read from some novel, and his father would lie there, staring at his son, smiling. Bill was exhausted from the day's care and work and would plead with his dad, look, here's the idea. I read to you, and you fall asleep. Bill's father would impishly apologize and dutifully close his eyes. But this wouldn't last long. Soon enough, Bill's father would pop one eye open and smile at his son. Bill would catch him and whine, come on, dad. The father would again oblige until he couldn't anymore, and the other eye would open to catch a glimpse of his son. This went on and on, and after his father's death, Bill said that this evening ritual was really a story of a father who just couldn't take his eyes off of his kid. And then he says, how much more so God? Boyle adds, what's true of Jesus is true for us. And so this voice breaks through the clouds and comes straight at us. You are my beloved in whom I am wonderfully pleased. In other words, for those of us who trust in Christ alone, God delights in us like a father delights over his son. At the end of each service, I pronounce what we call a benediction. And in layman's terms, that just means a blessing. And this particular blessing that I pronounce is found in number six, and it's called the Aaronic blessing because uh, the high priest Aaron uh, was commanded uh, by God to pronounce this blessing over the people of Israel. And you'll be familiar with these words. You've heard them before. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Now that word there actually means that when God looks at you, his face lights up. Now, for those of you who maybe have your own children, you maybe know that experience of your face lighting up 
when your daughter does her dance recital, right? Or when your son plays his soccer game. Or when your child comes home and they get an A on the paper and your face lights up in delight over them. It's possible that your face lit up with delight over them long before they'd ever done anything that actually uh, deserved delight. Krista and I, early on in each of our kids' lives, one of the things we would do is after we put them to bed in their footy pajamas and they quit crying and actually fell asleep, we would go in there and we would peek over the edge of the crib and we would look in delight at our children because it's what you do, right? And so what God is saying to Aaron to say to these people is let them know that when I look at them, my face lights up. He then goes on to say, the Lord turn his face not away from you, but towards you and give you his peace. In other words, remind the people that my face lights up when I look at them, that I delight in them. But that's not all that God wants you to know. He goes further in this passage in verse 17, where he says he rejoices over us. It says this, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. And Jeremy read the ESV this morning, which says he will exult over you in loud singing, which makes it sound a little bit more like um, God refuses to let his joy and his delight over you be diminished, right? It's not a silent rejoicing, but it's a loud rejoicing. So the question is, how many of you today need to hear that God smiles upon you, that his face lights up when he sees you? that he delights in you, that he rejoices over you with singing. Despite your sin, despite your rebellion, that the God of the universe delights in you, smiles over you, rejoices over you. How many of you need to hear that he rejoices over you with singing in spite of everything from your past, all those things that you think, man, there's no way that anyone could ever love me if they really knew about that? And yet God knows all of those things. He's omniscient, and yet he delights in you. He rejoices over you. If you trust in the Lord, that's the one requirement, right? You don't have to be perfect. You just have to trust in the Lord. Now, some of you kind of maybe are kind of thinking right now, like, how can I believe that's true, right? Like, I kind of want to believe that's true, but how can I believe that God delights in me, that he rejoices over me, how can I believe even what the, the middle section of that verse says, that there's no more any rebuke left for me? And the answer is always the same, is that Jesus came to this world in order to lay down his life for us. He came to pursue us. He came to draw us back into a relationship with God, right? And so today, as you look around this room, you see these tables with bread and with wine or bread and with grape juice. And part of what these tables represent is they represent the truth of how God sees you. Not because of your righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ. And so for those of you who trust not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ alone, God offers you this meal. And what this meal symbolizes is any number of different things. You're no longer guilty, right? But more than anything, according to Zephaniah, what this meal represents to you is that because of the sacrifice of his son, you can believe that God delights in you, that he rejoices over you, 
so much so that he allowed his son to go to the cross in order to die in your place. Now, I'm going to read the words of institution in just a moment before I invite you to the table. And while I'm inviting you to the table, what I would love for you to do is just take time to think about that picture of a father delighting in his child, uh, of God delighting over you. I would love for you to take just a moment and think about what it might mean that God would rejoice over you with loud singing. And then for those of you who trust in the Lord, come to this table And as you take this bread and dip it into this wine, believe that God delights in you, that he's for you, that he loves you. The one thing that I would offer as a qualification, and I think it was found in this passage of Zephaniah, is that this table isn't for people who don't trust in the Lord. So this table's not for people who don't trust in Christ alone. But for the rest of you, I would invite you to come to this table and receive the grace that God offers you. I'm going to read the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the entirety of Scripture. I thank you for even these words of the prophet Zephaniah that are almost 3,000 years old. Father, I thank you that you love us enough to warn us, um, to let us know when we are on paths that might harm us, and, and really not just harm us, but harm the very people that we love. But Father, I also thank you um, that you love us enough to remind us um, of how you see us, And Father, it may just be me, um, but I think it's true for most of us that our temptation is to allow Satan's voice to be louder. And we know that he's the accuser. We know he's the one that points out our flaws and our faults. We know that he's a liar. And so, Father, when Satan comes to us and says we've done too many bad things or you don't love us, you don't like us, you can't forgive us, Father, I pray that this meal today would be a reminder of the truth that you delight in us and that you rejoice over us, Father. Let that bewildering truth echo loudly in our hearts and in our heads, Father, and let that truth drown out um, the voice of the evil one. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.